Good morning, Christ Prez. I preached on this passage several years ago, and as I was looking back at what I said then, I realized that I needed to hear it again. And then I thought that maybe it's actually for all of us again. And so I'm basically going to preach the same sermon, uh, but with an eye this time, especially toward how this passage leads us toward humility in our common life together, in our community. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's addressing the challenges and the responsibilities that arise when disciples are sharing life together. And so this really is for us. Let's dig into this by looking at three things Jesus shows us about what it means to be a humble community of his disciples. He gives us a humble perspective. He calls us to a humble practice. And then third, he shows us that in order to do that, we need a humble power. Okay, so first, Jesus gives us a humble perspective about our life together. Look again at verse 1. Jesus says to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, Uh, which is a fine translation, but a more literal translation would be, it is impossible for scandals not to come. It's impossible for scandals not to come. The Greek is the word scandala, from which we get our word scandal. Scandals are bound to come, Jesus is saying. It's impossible that they won't. And so let's just pause here and think about that. See, he's not saying that there will be scandals out there in the world and that they might occasionally creep into the Christian community. He's saying that the Christian community itself is a flawed community that will inevitably experience scandala. Now, when you and I hear the word scandal, we usually think of something really big and really bad. You know, we can name scandals that we've seen in the news recently. Um, And there are really big, bad scandals. But the way the word is used in the New Testament, a scandal can be actually anything that causes stumbling. It can be anything that causes offense, anything that trips up another person in their effort to follow Jesus faithfully could be something really big and bad, or it could just be some relational friction that causes a brother or sister to stumble, to lose sight of Jesus, to lose sight of Jesus' upside-down kingdom, to stray from following after him. Jesus is saying, this will be your reality. He's giving us this humble perspective on the nature of our life together. He's saying, you will be flawed and fallible. There is not going to be a perfect community of disciples. There's not going to be a perfect denomination or a perfect congregation. This side of Jesus' return, the body of Christ will always be composed of sinful people who are in desperate need of the grace of Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we assume that to the extent that we're a flawed community, we must be a false community in some way. Like a real Christian community should be a little less messed up. But Jesus doesn't make that equation. He's saying, no, you really are a community of my disciples. And at the same time, it's inevitable that there will be offenses among you, occasions for stumbling, scandala. Now, the temptation right away, uh, when we're thinking about the flawed character of our community, the scandala, is to think about the ways others have wronged us, to think about the ways we've been wronged, to think about the ways that um, other people in the community have become a stumbling block for us. But look at what Jesus says. He doesn't say, pay attention to your neighbor. He doesn't say, pay attention to everyone else in the community. 
when it comes to scandals. He says, pay attention to yourselves. You see, that's the first move. Scandals are bound to happen. Pay attention to yourself. Are there ways that you are making it difficult for your brothers and sisters to follow Jesus? Are there ways you've become a stumbling block to them as they try to live into the upside down kingdom of Jesus? See, our instinct is to notice and highlight the ways that others are messing up the community. And I think Jesus is saying, no, pay attention to the ways you might be contributing to the mess. This is a humble perspective about our life together. It's incredibly realistic. I mean, scandals are bound to come. There will be offenses and occasions for stumbling. Because of this reality, second, Jesus gives us a humble practice. What is it? It's forgiveness. If we weren't a flawed community, there would be no need for us to be a forgiving community. But because we are, we need this humble practice of forgiveness. Look again at verses three and four. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, I find uh, those two verses just extremely challenging. Here are some of the ways I feel the challenge of this. First, Jesus is challenging my tendency and maybe yours too uh, to stand at a distance from people who I perceive to have done wrong. When we experience the messy, flawed nature of Christian community, Jesus is saying that what's needed is not apathy and inaction, but the active movement of rebuke and forgiveness. Which is a second way this challenges me, uh, in particular, that word rebuke. I mean, that's a hard word. If I had to choose between forgiveness and rebuke, I think I'd go with forgiveness. And you see, Jesus just ties those two together. He's calling us to do both. So how do we make sense of that? I mean, one way would be to, to read this and to divide it up into two very distinct separate actions. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And then if after you've let him have it with your top-notch rebuke, he happens to come around to your point of view and he sees that what he's done is really wrong and tears begin to form in the corners of his eyes He says he's sorry and he really means it and he resolves to make amends and to change his ways and not to engage in that sinful behavior again, then go ahead and forgive him. Well, that would be one way to make sense of what Jesus is saying here, but I don't think that's the best way to read this. I think Jesus is saying that rebuke and forgiveness are supposed to go together, that they aren't separate actions, but that they're part of one in the same movement. The rebuke is supposed to serve the greater goal of forgiveness. It's almost like part of the very process of forgiving. You know, basically when you rebuke someone, and what I take rebuke to mean in this context is pointing out someone's wrongdoing. When you do that, you're doing it for one of two reasons. You're doing it because you love the person and want what's best for them, or you're doing it out of self-love, because you want to show them to be wrong and yourself to be right, or something along those lines. And because we're complicated and our motives are often complicated, both of those can be swirling around in our hearts at the exact same time. But Jesus is showing us that rebuke and forgiveness belong together, 
like the reason to rebuke in the first place is that somehow you're already on your way to forgiveness. You're wanting to forgive. Maybe we could even go so far as to say that a godly rebuke is evidence that a kind of forgiveness is already essentially happening. Like it's already happening in your heart and you're looking to you're looking for it to find expression in the relationship. And so what Jesus might be saying here is don't rebuke unless you're already eager to forgive. See, the rebuke and the forgiveness are supposed to go together. If you rebuke without already having forgiveness at work in your heart, what ends up happening, and I've seen this done and I've done it myself, is that the rebuke just ends up being a way to dish out punishment. And it all but guarantees that the other person won't repent. Even if I tell myself it's for the other person's good, really what I'm after is my good. The rebuke of the other person ends up being a way to help me feel a little bit better about myself. You see, there's no humility in it. I'm not actually trying to help the brother or sister. I'm trying to show them how wrong they are. And that ends up hurting them. In that case, the rebuke isn't a way of humbly loving them. Now, on the other hand, if forgiveness just remains a purely internal process that I keep to myself, and I'm never willing to make that internal process explicit in the relationship by telling the other person how I have felt wronged, well, that too can just be a way of loving myself because that's often way more comfortable for me. It can be a way of prioritizing my own comfort over the relationship and and my care for the other person. See, but not making... Um, see, not making the forgiveness explicit by, by way of pointing out the person's wrongdoing, it can also lack the kind of humble love that Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is showing us that rebuking and forgiveness go together. That's the humble practice. And, and I, I wish I could say more about this. I mean, it'd be so nice to preach a sermon titled How to Give a Good Rebuke That is Likely to Facilitate Repentance and Forgiveness. And I'd do that if I were way, way wiser, if I, if I knew how. Uh, I don't. But I do think that a very basic guideline for us to hold on to is this. Don't begin a rebuke unless you're already committed to forgiveness. Like, don't start to point out how someone is wronging you unless you're really eager to forgive them already. Unless that forgiveness has already begun to happen within you. So many rebukes do more damage than good because they're actually aimed at hurting rather than fostering restoration and healing. That's been challenging to me. Well, here's another part of this that I find incredibly challenging. Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You know, it's easier to forgive people when they are obviously repentant than to forgive people who obviously are not repentant. Sometimes this verse has been used to argue that we're only required to forgive people when they are repentant. If they repent, forgive them. And if not, don't. Which would basically make our forgiveness of others dependent on their performance. Well, what about this view? What about this? Um, For one thing, you know, there are a lot of other texts in the Bible that suggest we're called to forgive even in the absence of repentance. But also, I mean, look at what Jesus is actually saying here. 
the forgiveness is to be offered to the same brother who has sinned against you seven times and who has said that he repents seven times all in the very same day. So imagine this. I mean, someone wrongs you. You point out the wrongdoing. They very quickly acknowledge the wrongdoing and their responsibility for it. They express regret. They declare their intention not to repeat the offense. They offer to repair the relationship. They humbly ask for your forgiveness. They repent. Well, I mean, my guess is, you being you, you're going to find it in yourself to forgive them. But now let's say it happens again, the same offense, and again, and again, and again, and again, seven times, all in the same day. You see, before long, it's going to be hard for you to take their repentance very seriously. And so I don't think Jesus can be putting the weight here on the other person's repentance. At seven times in one day, that's some pretty pathetic repentance. It's, it's really hard to take repentance seriously when it's just when the wrongdoing is repeated over and over and over again. I also don't think Jesus can be basing the forgiveness he's talking about here on how we feel. Because if someone sins against you seven times in one day, uh, you're going to feel angry. Jesus isn't saying don't be angry. Just have warm, loving feelings in your heart toward the offender and forgive them. So what is he talking about? I think he must be talking about an action or the refusal maybe to take action. He's calling us to the humble practice of endlessly refusing to pay the offender back. He's calling us to the humble practice of forgiveness. You see, the person has really wronged you and there are all kinds of ways you could make them pay. Maybe you could lay into them with a really strong rebuke that shames them and hurts them, that might help you feel a little better. Or maybe uh, you give them the silent treatment for a while. You know, that might help you feel a little better. Maybe you gossip a little bit about them and just drop little hints into other conversations about how wrong they were to hurt you. Or maybe you just go into full-on tit-for-tat mode. They've hurt you, and so now you hurt them back. You know, there are all kinds of ways that we can pay people back for wronging us, for scandalizing us, for causing us to stumble. And our methods can be subtle and they can be cruel. But forgiveness means laying all that aside and saying, no, I'm going to name the wrongdoing. I'm going to assess it. I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't exist or never happened. But then instead of making the other person pay, I'm going to absorb the hurt and the pain of the wrongdoing myself. I'm going to refuse to take up any of the many ways I could try to get back at them. Instead of making them pay for what they've done, I'm going to pay for what they've done. And you see, family, the payment just is the forgiveness. I mean, the very fact, the, uh, the very act of refusing payback is costly. It means absorbing the pain and the hurt rather than dishing it out. All of that is extremely challenging, isn't it? And uh, it was challenging for Jesus' disciples when they first heard him say this. And so at this point, I think they're wondering, how is this kind of forgiveness even possible? 
I mean, seven times a day, that just doesn't sound realistic. That sounds at least as unrealistic as commanding trees to be uprooted and having them obey us. Where can the community of disciples find a power for this kind of humble practice? Well, what the disciples assume is that it's only possible if they have more faith. And that seems like a reasonable assumption, right? I mean, if we're going to forgive like this, we've got to be more faithful. Only Jesus doesn't affirm their assumption. Look again. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. You see, there it is. There's this desire for, for great, powerful faith. But look at Jesus' response. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. What's going on here? Well, it helps to remember the bigger context of where the passage is in Luke's gospel. It's part of this longer section in which Jesus is teaching about how different his vision of the good life is from ours. You know, we tend to think that success and greatness is defined by strength and winning and being first and being best. And over and over again, Jesus has shown that greatness in his kingdom means becoming low and least and last. And so I think the disciples and maybe you and I think that if we're really going to embrace this humble practice of forgiveness, then we better have incredible faith. It better be big and it better be strong. We better be spiritual giants. Our goal should be to have so much faith that others marvel at how we've so mastered the spiritual life. So much faith maybe in our community that scandals and stumbling and offenses never even happen. Only Jesus has already told us that they will happen. And he's not after big faith. He just wants real faith. And it can be hardly any at all. It can be as tiny and as fragile as a mustard seed. So often what we tell each other and tell ourselves is that in order to live um, into this humble, upside down vision of the kingdom that Jesus gives us, We've got to have big, strong faith. In order to really love each other well as a Christian community, we've got to become spiritual superheroes. And Jesus is saying, no. Even when it comes to faith, you don't have to be a winner. You don't have to be impressive. In fact, maybe he's even saying, you must not be. You must not be a winner. Because in reality, you are not. At the end of our passage, Jesus tells a little parable, and I don't really have a whole lot to say about it other than um, that the whole point of it seems to be to remind us that we are small, that we are servants. It's meant, I think, to lead us to humility. Jesus is saying, The power you need to embrace the humble practice of forgiveness is a humble power. I mean, it it means remembering who you are, that you are a sinner who is saved by grace, and remembering that 
the grace comes to you in a very particular way as a very particular person. You're a servant who goes around acting like a master, but you have a master who has become a servant. And this one, Jesus takes the long road to the cross and he dies there. Rather than dish out payback, he absorbs the hurt and the pain of our sin and shame into himself. And you see, family, that is the rebuke. And it is the forgiveness. The cross is both. And only by looking there will we ever know how really wrong we are. Only looking there will we know the depth of our sin. But it's also only by looking there that we can know how loved we are. God is not holding our sin against us. He's not waiting for the day when he can make us pay. You know, scripture says that the ultimate scandal on is the cross of Christ itself. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles. It seems like an absolutely crazy way for God to accomplish our salvation by becoming a human being and living for us and dying for us. But family, this is the power of God. It is always and only the power of humble, self-giving love. And so see the scandal of it, that God would live and die for you because he loves you. And then grab hold of that in faith, even mustard seed sized faith. Trust that this is enough. And then maybe you'll be able to do the impossible. Forgive seven times seven. Forgive the same brother or sister seven times for seven offenses in the same day. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.